All right, so we've got our Bibles out. We're ready to go. Yep, Seth, uh, high school can go too. Yeah. So I'm not up there. So go with Mr. Chris. All right. The history book of the church, right? Acts. Pastor Ken even mentioned that just a few minutes ago. It's a pretty sensational start, isn't it? Think about the chapter content in chapter one, right? We've got this this reality that Jesus is going to be departing again. Uh, He's going to ascend. We see his ascension in chapter one. We're told we're going to be given, or we, the church and collective, is going to be given this Holy Spirit that's going to enable us to be powerful witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? We also have the reality of Judah's gruesome suicide, right? Judas's, excuse me, gruesome suicide. And the apostles cast lots to replace him with Matthias, right? So some pretty sensational things, things that we don't necessarily find ourselves doing every day. I can assure you that when we make decisions as elders, we're not bringing out our, our case that has our lots in it and kind of tossing them up to see who draws the short end. And we go to Acts chapter 2, right? We have the Pentecost, pretty powerful, sensational stuff going on in the first few chapters of our history book. Now we find ourselves in chapter 3, so turn to chapter 3 this evening. And by the way, there's nothing less sensational in chapter 3. We have this pretty incredible miracle, right? This lame beggar at the temple and... Uh, He's healed. And when Peter gets up to address the crowds that are naturally amazed and stunned and wowed and and bewildered by what's happened through this lame man who is now leaping and shouting for joy, it's a very public spectacle. Peter doesn't get up and he doesn't address the miracle and, and say, look, look at the miracle. Look at what the church can do. He doesn't say that at at all. In fact, he really doesn't even address the miracle. He doesn't address the great faith and power that he has as an apostle. He doesn't bring attention to himself. He doesn't really bring attention to the faith of the beggar either. But he proclaims the need for repentance here in Acts chapter 3. The need for repentance. And so while our history book as a church is very sensational in its few chapters, kind of opening up the the beginning of the church, I want us to consider tonight that even though, again, we find ourselves in a sensational part of the scriptures and certainly a sensational part of our history, that's not where our church's identity is found. The church as a whole, certainly church Grace Church of Menor. In other words, we're we're not identified, we don't don't seek to identify as people who can work miracles and and, and have thousands upon thousands upon thousands saved. There's not tens of thousands in this auditorium. We can't even hold that this evening. There's not even thousands or even a thousand here. And so if we were to kind of measure ourselves a little bit according to what's happening in the book of Acts, we might kind of scratch our head and say... Are we working 
as a church? Is everything going on? Is everything okay? Things seem so sensational. And uh, I just want to call our attention tonight to Acts chapter 3 and the reality that, that the Christian life and, and certainly the identity of the church is, is not about sensationalism, but it is as fundamental and as simple and as necessary as the message of the gospel. And so in verse 1, we see now Peter and John were going up to the temple. And just stop for a second and consider where we just came from in Acts chapter 2. We just came from the Pentecost, right? We just came from the Spirit of God working and Peter proclaiming and, and, and Jew upon Jew getting saved. And so are these kind of, is, are Peter and John just missing their, their, their temple? Are they, are they kind of taking a hit again back to the Jewish religion? What's, what's exactly going on? It, doesn't it seem like it's a little bit of an odd place to start for the new church to go to the temple, the very fundamental, the very center of the Jewish religion? That seems a little curious, maybe at least for me, it does. It wasn't the whole point of Pentecost that the church has a new direction, and, and it's certainly in contrast to the realities of, of the law in the Jewish religion. And don't you think Peter and John knew what Jesus said about the temple in Matthew chapter 12? Didn't he say that there is something pointing to himself greater than the temple that is here? So did Peter and John kind of miss that part of Jesus' Jesus's instruction? Or maybe when Jesus was at the well in John chapter 4 instructing the woman at the well in the Jewish religion, he says this, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Directly contrasting the reality of the temple and the Jewish in the Jewish person's life, the, the Jewish person, that is the temple is where God was. That is where they approached God and that is where they worshiped God. And Jesus kind of throws out that whole foundation and says, God is a spirit and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. So how in the world does the new church, two of the 12 of the leaders of the new church, how does the new church fit into the temple? Or how does the temple, rather, fit in to the new church here? And uh, if you remember, we go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, right? But you will receive power. With the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my what? My witnesses. And where's the first place? Both in Jerusalem. And there's no greater center of Jerusalem than the temple. And so we see here that faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ proclaim the absolute need of repentance. That's, Jesus, that's Peter's point in Acts chapter 3. The absolute need for repentance. And that faithful witnesses, if you're going to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ, you're going to proclaim the absolute necessity much like what we heard this morning in Romans chapter 9 going into Romans chapter 10, the absolute necessity of repentance, turning from sin and to God. 
And so as we start this passage, really we find Peter and John going to the temple because they are taking Jesus' command to heart. You shall receive the Holy Ghost. And he came in Acts chapter 2. <laughs> it wasn't, couldn't, you couldn't miss that if you were a believer in Jesus Christ. And so now where are they going? They're going to Jerusalem. They started in Acts chapter 2. They were already there. And now they're going to the very place where the Jewish people gather to worship. And so we see, even in their witness, a priority of repentance. There's a priority that we're going to see here in Acts chapter 3. There's also a result of repentance. And then we'll see the people of repentance. So that's our simple outline this evening. But when faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ proclaim the need for repentance, they understand that there is a priority in everything. And there's a priority in repentance. And so that's why we find Peter and John going to the temple. And so they were obeying this great commission outline in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And so what better place to reach the Jewish people than the temple? So what is your commitment this evening to fulfilling Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? The outline of the Great Commission. Right? Peter and John, I think, were pretty committed to seeing that witness go forth. They went back to the temple. So what is your commitment? Right? And as we, as we consider their witness, let's look at the reality that it was Peter and John, Peter records, that went to the temple. You know, that's interesting because right from the start, we see church leaders, what? Leading. Not just in word, not just, in, 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 not just preaching Pentecost, but we now see Peter and John actually taking feet to what they're saying through the Holy Spirit and going and doing. Boy, I'm so thankful that we have a senior pastor that I think above a lot of things certainly could preach, but he certainly has a practice of his preaching in his life. And, and if you spend any time with him, you'll know that his, he has a great passion to not only preach the gospel, but to put feet to the gospel in our community. And so that's exactly what Peter and John do here. Leaders are to be evangelistic, not only in what they say or in what they tell in their teaching, but in their practice. And notice that it's, it'll be interesting throughout this chapter and the next chapter that Peter and John are recorded. Very personal, Peter and John, two of the twelve. But Peter is the only one who really speaks, really has anything to add to the to the, to the story, if we wanted to call it that, to the situation. John is just along in name. But what's interesting is that he's not left out, even though he doesn't seem, at least in terms of it being recorded, to play a, a, an important role in the next chapter or two. But it's, it's very instructive for us that there are no lone rangers in the reality of our, of our practice, of our of our ministry. And I think that that's true here. Peter could certainly preach, and he did in Acts chapter 2. He will again in Acts chapter 3. 
But the reality is, is that Peter knew he couldn't do it by himself. And furthermore, Peter probably wanted some extra help along the way. And so there's accountability and there's, there's fellowship. And I didn't want to overlook that as we look at Acts chapter 3 and the situation of the miracle. That Peter and John, as leaders, set a priority for repentance, a call to repentance. And we'll look at that. But I also want us to consider tonight that, that Pentecost was a pretty, pretty sensational thing, as we mentioned, right? And we know that thousands were saved. And don't you think that there were probably more saved individuals than just Peter and John that wanted to actually obey the scriptures and fulfill the Acts 1-8 outline, going and reaching the gospel to Jerusalem? So, in other words, don't you think that there were probably other believers besides Peter and John that were going to the temple and proclaiming Christ, him crucified, risen again? I would say there probably were. Especially if you look at the power at which people came to Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. I mean, people were so convicted and so consumed with their Christ that they gave everything so that the church could prosper as a unit. And so it's interesting that in Acts chapter 3, Luke, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records a very, not only just leaders, but he records a very personal focus for the leaders, Peter and John, to go and to do the Great Commission. In other words, it's not just a church impersonal activity, but that it is really a personal endeavor that each one is to take up and do. And so as we ask the question, what is your commitment? Let's change the question to, what is your personal commitment to fulfilling the Acts 1-8 outline of gospel proclamation? So not just how I may give towards the mission of Grace Church of Menor, or not just how I support Grace Church of Menor and its leadership through prayer, and those are certainly important things, and God commanded things, and in ways that we worship here at Grace Church of Mentor. But, but really, the fact of the matter is, how do I personally put feet and practice giving the gospel? What is your personal commitment to that? And let's look at another interesting aspect of this miracle, and I know we haven't even gotten out of verse 1 yet, but now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the Ninth hour. By sunlight hours, that would have been 3 p.m. If you start at 6 p.m. with general sunlight coming up. And if we weren't convinced about Peter and John's desire to fill, fill one, uh, Acts 1.8, uh, the question would, would be really, what are they doing praying with the Jews? Why are they going and praying with the Jews who... Oh, right? Worship. Statues and eyes and ears, well, they don't do that, but, but they're, 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 they're akin to that in the Old Testament. Well, we understand that they're being as effective as possible taking the Great Commission to the Jew Jewish people. Right? They are going to the temple at one of the two busiest times of the day, the time when everyone comes and gathers and prays. That's not by accident. That's maximizing. That's being efficient with their opportunities in life. 
And so we could further ask the question, what is your personal commitment to maximizing the fulfillment of the Acts 1-8 gospel outline in your life? So Peter and John, they went during the time that everyone's going for prayer. So what am I not saying? I'm not saying that uh, you know that your neighbors are going to be home at dinner time. And so you go and you knock on their door and you interrupt dinner to give them the gospel. Right? If I were your neighbor, I wouldn't like that so much. It's hard enough to get a two-year-old to sit down at the dinner table, let alone when the dog's going crazy and someone comes to the door. But what I am saying is, what is your personal commitment to maximizing the fulfillment of the Acts 1-8 outline of the gospel? So we could rethink that and say, okay, everybody needs to eat. We need to eat. Even though our neighbors are very busy, even though we don't necessarily see them very often, they need to eat too. And so we could use a dinner time as an opportunity to get to know them, to eventually give them the gospel. And so just one little illustration or way that Peter and John used their time and the most efficient use of their time to give the gospel. So we ought to take heed and consider our time and our ability to use what God has given us for the furtherance of the gospel. Because there is a priority, as we see in the context, of repentance with this miracle. A priority of repentance. And so we see that they prioritize their witness. And then we see that they prioritize their, the spiritual needs over the physical needs. This man had legitimate physical needs. Look at verse 2. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. He was lame from his mother's womb. And he was so lame that he, was, he needed to be carried. The temple was in the highest place in the city. And to get to the actual temple, you had to, no way about it. You had to go upstairs. There was no handicap ramps or accessibility or escalators or elevators or, or a way to parachute. Right? And so this man had a legitimate physical need. He was lame from birth. There was no denying it. He wasn't a faker. He wasn't a guy who, you know, kind of puts his blue handicap sign up when no one's looking so he can get the closest spot at Walmart, gets out of his car, and, and three strides into getting out of his car, he remembers he has to fake limping. That's not the guy. You've seen him. See? You, maybe you are. No, you're not. I think there's a pretty big fine for that, by the way, so don't try. But he's not that guy. He is legitimately lame, and by lame, so much so that he has to be carried. So he, this, this guy is crippled. He cannot walk. There's no faking it. There's no question about it. And in Acts chapter 4, we learn that he's over 40 years old. This isn't a teenager. This isn't a, a child. This is over 40-year-old man. And so he had a legitimate physical need. See here, in the priority of repentance, spiritual needs are always far more important than physical needs. And it's so much more important than it's even more important than the efforts to mitigate legitimate physical needs. So what do I mean by that? 
Look at verse 2. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day. Who is this they? Well, if this man cannot work, he cannot earn money, he cannot survive on his own aside from whatever alms, whatever people give him as a beggar. And so if he was lame from his mother's womb, who do you think, who has been caring for him since his mother's womb? His family. Right? Much like what we would do in this culture. And so his family is trying to mitigate his needs, his physical needs, by, by bringing him to the temple so that people will give him money so that he can provide some food for himself to survive. And he was begging, giving alms, the text says. Just like Peter and John took advantage of the crowds at prayer time, so this man, he knows when to come, when to lay out, and when to beg. And, this, and, and as many people are going to pass by, he knows that there's going to be some that are going to give his coffers. In fact, uh, the Jewish law, the Mishnah, was very, very specific that if you had the ability to give, you should give to those in need. And you should give according to your ability. So it was a proportional statement. And, however, it was also said that by several that I read that, that these, that, you know, it's no, it's no, uh, it's no, secret that, you know, Jews can pinch a penny, right, and make two pennies, right? And so no doubt many of them are going by and rationalizing in their head that I don't have that much, so I will give not that much. They're probably, in other words, beggars at the temple, even though it was, even though it was fulfilling the law for people to give money to them, they really didn't make much. They made very little and maybe just enough to get by to eat and to care for their day's physical needs. But spiritual needs are always more important. And physical needs are spiritual opportunities. And that's what we're going to see in this text as well, in the priority of repentance. Look at verses 6 and 7. Well, before we do that, we better continue on reading here. Verse 3, when he saw... Uh, Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms, but Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And so this man is just used to people going by, by, by. He's not even making contact with the people. He's saying, please, please help me, please. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And here's where we see that physical needs are, are always... It, when, when we have the priorities in place and when we're really operating underneath Acts 1.8 and the great commission that Jesus gives us recorded in Matthew, we're always going to use physical needs to bring about something spiritual. And that is no different even in the sensational moment of this miracle because there's a priority in repentance. Verse 6 says, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold. Silver and gold have I none, right? But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And so he was, he was expecting something from Peter, but he wasn't expecting that. And Peter, Peter 
Peter doesn't want to merely give him money. And he, he flat out says, I don't have anything to give you except for what you're not looking for. And we'll see in the context in verses 16 and verse 19 and verse 26 that this miracle, like all miracles, is based on the authority of Jesus Christ always looking forward to faith through repentance. And so there is a priority even in this miracle, and we'll see that as we go on throughout the text, in repentance. And so physical needs become spiritual opportunities. You know, the question may come up in your mind like it did mine. If Peter and John had money, would they have given it? And I kind of was mulling over that, praying about that. And I really thought, well, you know, that's not really the question to ask because if money is really what God wanted this beggar to have, he would have made sure that Peter and John had money that day. God's priority for money in the new church was clearly addressed in Pentecost, wasn't it? Right? Everyone gets saved. There becomes great need for all those who are transient and who don't have. And so what's the, what's the, the memoranda that comes down from the Holy Spirit? Right? Through inside. It wasn't a force or an external thing. But through the inside of the heart, the Holy Spirit says, give everything. Right? So that everyone can physically have their needs met. And so the Spirit of God had moved all the believers to take care of the new church, the new church's physical needs, so that the new church could focus on the spiritual opportunities. So that was how God wanted to handle money for the new church. Focus on meeting the needs of the new church physically so that the church could focus on the spiritual needs. And I think that's something that we pray here often, that God would take care of the physical needs, not only of us in our households and our children, but that he would, he would protect us and then we'd take care of our greater church's physical needs so that we could just focus on the spiritual needs. And so I'm, I'm so thankful that even in the midst of oftentimes feeling like, like we're going to expand and we're going to burst out, that, that, that it never becomes about always the physical needs here. But it, it really is always a focus on having the spiritual needs met. And that was really the reality with Peter and John as they seek right, to put repentance as their first priority. So there's the priority of repentance. And then there's the results of repentance. Pretty sensational. Not necessarily going to be the same thing, and I'm certainly going to qualify that, but the results of repentance. Look at verse uh, 8 with me. So verse 7, right? Uh, The lame man has his hand out, expecting money, and instead... Peter grabs his hand and says, get up and walk. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So our abilities change. Now, 
hold on, I'm going to qualify because I'm not expecting that when I turn from my sin and place my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to be able to jump five or ten times higher physically. Okay, but our abilities change. And that, that was the picture here with this man and his repentance. No longer a lame man. He is now a profitable member of society. His family does not have to burden, is not burdened by carrying him up to the temple. And while this doesn't mean that there's, there's always going to be or that there ever is a, a, a supernatural physical transpor, transformation, as I said, this is, this is certainly a picture of something remarkable that's happening when I turn from sin and I place my faith in Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 3 uh, is very, is very uh, picturesque, just like Peter is here, or Luke is here, when the lame man gets up and with a leap, he stood. And Isaiah captures that very much in Isaiah chapter 3 when he's pointing to a future time of blessing for God's people. And he says, the lame will leap like deer. And so this is very much a picture of our inward ability. It's a picture of that which is to come, too, for all those who are in Jesus Christ. Even some now who are maimed with physical deficiencies. That will one day be you and me with all of our physical frailties. We will no longer have the lame that this man had. And so it's a, a picture of that to come. But for you and for me, it is a greater picture this evening in our dispensation of the reality of what happens when the Spirit of God comes into a heart and when He indwells. And so our love changes, doesn't it? We become two people in a household that just fight and fight and fight and always want our own way to two people in a household that demonstrate the selfless, loving agape love that God the Father and the Son demonstrates towards us. And so it's, it becomes all about how I can better that individual and how I can love that individual from self-absorption to selflessness. Think about the fruit of the Spirit, joy, right? From, from looking at circumstances and, 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 and letting that uh, take us on roller coaster rides to basing our joy in Jesus Christ. How about patience? Supernatural inward change that the Holy Spirit gives us to want to see other people grow and to understand that no one's perfect, and so to ex- and to expect anybody to be perfect is just unreasonable. Oh, and by the way, when I point my finger at them and I don't have patience, how many fingers are pointing back at me? Self-control, kindness, gentleness. You see, when we turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ, our abilities change, don't they? Supernatural abilities change. Our spiritual ability change. We become alive in Jesus Christ. And so our abilities change. And so that's, that's a great picture there. But not only do our abilities change, our association changes. Look at verses 8 and 11 with me. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple 
with them. Remember, this is the beggar who didn't even look at them when he wanted some money, right? And so now he's going in with them. And look at verse 11. Don't miss it. Right? While he was clinging. How can you miss that? He was clinging to them. And so when we turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ, not only do our abilities change, but our associations change. And that's no different for us today. Look at 2. Not only he associates with Peter and John, but he also associates with God himself. Verse 8, he was walking with them in the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. And so his affections changed as well. You know, what's interesting is in the, in the, in the Greco-Roman world of the day, uh, disabilities were really objects of ridicule. People with disabilities were objects of ridicule. ridicule. It, was, it was typical for someone that was hosting a gathering or a group of people to, to, to have a stammerer sing for entertainment purposes. Can you imagine? To have a bald man comb his hair. I don't find that entertaining. But I guess we do make jokes to people who are secure in their baldness, don't we? Or to have a lame man dance on a greased floor. So the culture ridiculed the disabled. And furthermore, the culture viewed that disabled person as having done something wrong. There's a reason why God made you this way. It's your fault. And so they would literally oppress and squish those who were disabled, ultimately raising themselves up as somehow better and greater, so much so that people that were disabled were viewed as half-people. And so if you had a blind man and a lame man and you put them together, you might get a whole man. But they were really by themselves half people. This man's 40 years old. He's probably been spit at. He's probably been mocked at. He may have even been hired to come to a party to dance on a greased floor. What do you think his disposition was towards the God who made him that way in the culture? It probably was not one to, to, to go around and praising him, was it? But when someone truly turns from their sin and places their faith in Jesus Christ, their affections and their associations change, and it's no different here. What a great picture of the reality of what happens, the results of repentance. As a youth pastor, I, I work with teens quite a bit who, you know, they're clinging on to people or to stuff. And I often, unfortunately, have the opportunity to challenge them In your life, 
Was there ever a moment in your life when you were, when you turned from your sin and you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? And that's going to look like something. And that, that's going to mean that, that's, that your, your life's going to live like something. You know, Peter puts it this way in, in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, it's not until you understand that your heart, you understand sin and what you've done to Jesus Christ until your heart has been pierced, he uses that terminology, your heart pierced with the idea, with the reality that your sin put Jesus Christ on the cross. Just like Pastor was preaching this morning. That repentance means something. And there are results of repentance. And no doubt, one of those great results that should be growing in our life as we manifest the Great Commission and as we, as we according to the outline of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, go to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the othermost parts of the earth with the gospel, there should be a growing influence. Influence. Because of the repentance that you and I have in turning from our sin and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. This miracle, this sensational miracle, we can still learn quite a bit from. And all the people saw this lame man walking and praising God. And verse 10, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. There's an influence that right away this man has because of his repentance. Look at verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. Sure, these are sensational words because it's a sensational miracle. But nonetheless, the truth still remains that one of the great results of repentance in my life and in your life is that we are going, our lives will influence those around us to do the same. And so there's a priority in repentance and there is a result in repentance. Then there's the person of repentance. Look at verse 11, or really the people of repentance. Verse 11, while we were clinging, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them, the so-called particle, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if it's by your own power or piety that we made him walk? Peter says, it's not true. It's not about us. It's certainly not about the lame man. Who's it about? Who is the first person here? of repentance. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus Christ, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So there's the three people that we see of repentance that I want to look at as we close. First of all, the God of heaven. That's in verse 13, isn't it? Secondly, his son, the servant, Jesus Christ, again in verse 13. And then the one whom you delivered and disowned. That is, in this context, the Jewish people. And so first, the God of heaven. The God is the great initiator of repentance of mankind. We don't really quite understand from 
this story how the lame man came to know Jesus Christ. Did he overhear the sermon at Pentecost? Did he hear the results of it? We don't really have a dialogue between Peter, John, and this lame man, but make no mistake about it. It is the God of heaven who is in the business of calling men to repent. And so he repents. We don't have the background. We don't have the story. But my friends, there's a priority in repentance. There's results of repentance. And then there's the God of heaven who makes it all work in your life. You know, I I remember sitting back here when I was a teenager and I was, you know, one of those people today that pastor was talking about that was blinded by religiosity in my own life. And for six months... I listened to Pastor Potter's booming voice time and time again, calling sinners to repentance. And for six months, it had ill effect on, no effect on me. I just sit, sat there, minding my own business. My friends, I can't explain it to you. And I know you probably have similar memories of your own. That there was a time when I realized and my heart was pierced, as Peter puts it in Acts chapter 2, with the reality that my sin was enough to put him on the cross and there was nothing I could do. I can't explain why I sat there and wasted six months of my life, save a week? And why suddenly, after hearing the gospel, pretty much identical at the end of every single sermon that Pastor Potter Potter preached? What was different about that day? But the God of heaven does. Because he is the one who calls. Look at, look at the rest of the text with me in verse 15. Whom God raised from the dead, linking the resurrection with the reality of repentance and the reality of God's plan. God is the planner, the originator. He planned Jesus Christ's death for you and for me. And he plans our Repentance, he initiates our repentance. Look at verse 18. But these things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets. Again, God planning time and time again. And so I can't tell you why someone can sit here and listen to the gospel and and it take years for them. And one day, something just happens. That something is God and God himself and the mystery of God. And so God is the great planner and the great initiator of repentance. So God plans. Secondly, verse 13, we see that God plans and is brought about glorifying his servant, Jesus. We see him all throughout the rest of this chapter. Verse 14, the Holy One and the Righteous One they disowned. Verse 16, how in the world does this miracle happen anyway? Well, it's based on faith in His name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. 
it is Jesus. Faith which comes through him has given him his perfect health in the presence of you all. And what an understatement, perfect health. (laughs) Perfect whole health in terms of physical and spiritual. And so it is Jesus who has been crushed according to this text. Remember, Peter is in the temple and he is preaching to the Jews and he points to them and he says, it is the God of heaven that initiates repentance and it is the Son that is the means by which you can repent and turn from your sin and come to Him. And He points to them a third time and He says, and it is you who put Him on the cross. Very much like Isaiah chapter 53. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our Peace fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That is the reality. The servant, the son, suffers in repentance or for our repentance. So God plans, servant, son, bears the full weight of our sin, and it is the people here that are the ones who have rejected him, but nonetheless are still being entreated and invited again to come to him. Is that God's mercy and God's amazing grace? The very people that actually crucified him. God says, start with them. Give them another opportunity with the gospel. I mean, we can take a couple lessons with the perseverance that we should have with our family members, shouldn't we, from that. Is God done with anybody? I don't think God's done with anybody until they draw their last breath. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Isn't that a beautiful thought for you and for me even after repentance? That God is not done with you even when you (laughs) just blow everything out of the water? There's a great long-suffering to the plan of God and a great person in the suffering son who bears that. And here we see those people, the Jews. Look at verse 13. God the planner glorifies his son, verse 13. And midway there it says, The one whom you delivered and disowned to Pilate. You. You. Verse 14, you disowned him. You even asked for a murderer to be freed instead of Jesus Christ. And that's how much you hated him. In verse 17, Peter says, you acted in ignorance. And that might be maybe kind of a a pause. And it might cause you to scratch your head a little bit and say, well, did they really act in ignorance? And, And we could say, well, the, the ignorance, the truth was certainly not hidden, right? I mean, Peter gives example, examples of revealed truth in verses 22 through 25. I mean, that's, he's quoting uh, Moses there in, 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 in the reality that the Messiah is going to come. So, so they certainly knew about the Messiah, but it was not as much an ignorance of knowledge as it was an ignorance of acceptance, an ignorance of the heart. I think their heart was hard 
and Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. He's speaking of Gentiles here, so it's, it's not apples to apples, but I think the parallel is real. Being darkened in there, that's, that's the Gentiles' understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of the heart. You see, it's never a matter of the mind at the end of the day. The mind doesn't reject Jesus Christ. The heart does. I mean, the mind certainly can reason and ration, and there's people learning about creation today and, and the, real, the reality of all those who reason through how there's not a creator. But at the end of the day, it's not the mind that rejects Jesus Christ. It's the heart. It's the heart. And how many people do you know, know, but they're just like this group, that their heart is ignorant towards Jesus Christ. And ultimately, just like in this text, what is in their heart comes out. It was demonstrated here. <laughs> they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not until a person's heart is pierced with the, the reality that they did the very same thing or they would have done the very same thing with Jesus Christ except if they come to him. And so verse 16, we see that it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 19, we see, therefore repent, he says to the people, and return so that your sins may be wiped away. What a beautiful picture of, of walking away from God and, and, and calling the Jewish people to stop walking away from God. They don't see themselves as walking away from God, but their heart is ignorant and they are walking from God. And so he says in verse 19, Come back that your sins may be forgiven. Come that your sins may be forgiven. And so God plans, the servant suffers, and men are called to turn. And that's what Peter is really using this miracle for. You know, Jesus, when he does miracles, oftentimes his formula is he explains the miracle, or he explains, and then he does the miracle. And why can Jesus do that? Because Jesus is God, and he knows everything, and he knows what's about to happen, and he has the power right there and then to do a miracle, and so he wants everyone to understand why he's about to do the miracle. And so oftentimes, he has an explanation, and then he does the miracle, right? The, the, the paralytic coming through the roof is one reality of that. Peter doesn't have that luxury. He's not God. He can't guarantee that there's going to be a miracle that's going to happen. Certainly underneath the Spirit at that moment, he knows, and, and it happens, and however that works, that's between him and God. So Peter takes the opportunity of the lame man that was over 40 years old, lame from birth, now leaping around the temple, and he wants to call everyone's attention to the reality that repentance is what this miracle is about. Amen. Sure. Miracles are ultimately to, uh, to give authority to Jesus Christ as the Son of God and then to give authority to the apostles and the ap apostolic ministry. But it's not just about authority, my friends. Men are called to do something with that authority. And so tonight, 
we see that the priority of this miracle is like all the miracles that ever happened, including the one that continues to happen every day through new birth, is the priority of repentance. We see the results of repentance, and we see here the people of repentance. And so tonight, Acts is a sensational start, isn't it? Between Pentecost, between the Ascension, all kinds of sensational things. Here in Acts chapter 3, we plop ourselves again into the middle of a sensational story. A real story. Lame man leaping around the temple. But, you know, there's no... The truth is timeless. While we don't see people leaping around after being lame for 40 years, we see the call ever so clearly for your ministry and for my ministry, for our witness to bear faithfully to the gospel, to call men and women to repent. So tonight, you know, I trust that this group has done that. They, they have, like verse 19, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Verse 26, for you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from his wicked ways. I trust that you've done that tonight. Because if you haven't, you're missing the point of everything. Because people would claim sensational things as a, as a way to attract people and as a way to gather people. Peter could have done that. We have people that are televised, syndicate around the world. People that have their own Sirius XM radio stations. And they grow popular and they have sensationalism and they have people come to hear them and they flock by the thousands. But if it were about sensationalism, I think Peter would have brought that up in the first three chapters of the history book of the church. But it's not. He uses the miracle to call men and women to repentance.